You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Okay, I see that we have a lot of new faces with us today. Uh, we so appreciate you joining us for the Central Eurasian Studies Summer Institute's lecture series. Uh, for those who don't know me already, I am Sarah Linkert, my pronouns are she, her, and I am the SESI program coordinator. Um, today's lecture, as you may have noticed, will be recorded, but the Q&A portion will not. We ask that you please hold your questions until after the presentation. Today's speaker is Sarah Cameron. Uh, Dr. Cameron is an associate professor of history at the University of Maryland, College Park. Her research interests include genocide and crimes against humanity, environmental history, and the societies and cultures of Central Asia. She is the author of The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan, published by Cornell University Press in 2018 which examines the causes and consequences of one of the most heinous crimes of the Stalinist regime, the Kazakh famine of 1930 through 1933. In the United States, the book won four book awards and two honorable mentions. It also intense discussion in Kazakhstan where the famine remains a sensitive topic in part due to Kazakhstan's close relationship with Russia. Russian and Kazakh translations of the book have been released and the book was the top selling history title in Kazakhstan for 2020. At present, Professor Cameron is at work on a new book length project examining the transformation of the Aral Sea in Central Asia over the course of the 20th century. She received her PhD from Yale University. Thank you for joining us today, Sarah. Thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs> it's a great, um, great pleasure to be here virtually uh, and to be with, uh, you know, so many people with interest in this region. So let me um, share my screen with you. And um, let's see, back to the beginning. Uh, so thank you very much for, uh, for the invitation. Uh, one of the great aspects of working on Central Eurasia, I believe, uh, is actually the community of people who study it. Uh, I found, in general, the people who study this region um, to be a very friendly and uh, inclusive group. Um, we're a small group, um, and arguably, I found uh, one that's uh, less hierarchical uh, than some of the more kind of traditional geographic fields of study that uh, surround us, like Russia or China. And um, I've learned an enormous amount through interaction with my peers. Um, they've become trusted colleagues and friends. Um, and so before uh, delving into my own research today, um, I think it's only uh, appropriate to acknowledge that um, this field, my field of uh, modern Central Asia recently suffered a huge and devastating loss, uh, which is that uh, Professor Maya Peterson a historian of Russia and Soviet Central Asia at the University of San California, Santa Cruz, passed away unexpectedly last month. Uh, Professor Peterson's first book, the wonderfully titled Pipe Dreams, uh, this was a pioneering um, uh, attempt to write an environmental history of Central Asia, focusing on the issue of Russian and Soviet irrigation efforts. I really encourage all of you to read it. And uh, in her research and writing, uh, I think she was very forward thinking and bold 
uh, exploring themes such as race, transnational history, and the history of consumption and food. She was also a very friendly and open person, and I think played a vital role in encouraging and mentoring younger scholars um, in our field. So um, as, I, as I said, this happened unexpectedly last month. And uh, as I speak to you today, uh, Maya, her family, and all her loved ones uh, will be in my thoughts. And Maya, you're greatly missed. So turning to the subject of my own research, uh, I'd like to speak to you today about uh, my book, the title of this talk, uh, The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan, which was published in fall 2018. The book examines the largely neglected story of the Kazakh famine of 1930 to 33, which led to the death of a million and a half people. I'll talk about how I approach telling this story uh, today and uh, working on such a sensitive topic, one that continues to reverberate in Kazakhstan. Uh, and along the way, uh, over the course of my talk, I'll talk a little bit about how the book has been received in Kazakhstan. Russian and Kazakh translations of the book came out in 2020, uh, and the book became a bestseller in Kazakhstan. And it also became wrapped up in a broader debate in Kazakhstan about the meaning of the Soviet past and the nature of modern Kazakhstani identity. So at the end of the talk, I'll talk a little bit about what I learned uh, from the response to my book in Kazakhstan and how that shaped my thinking about my next project on the Aral Sea crisis. In the early 1990s, Je Abashuli spoke about his memories of the Kazakh famine. I was still a child, but I could not forget this, Abashuli recalled. My bones are shaking as these memories come into my mind. During the famine, activists with the Soviet regime had stripped Abashuli's family of their livestock and grain. His father's relatives had fled Soviet Kazakhstan entirely, escaping across the border to China. But for those who remained, Abashuli concluded, hunger was, quote, a silent enemy. He remembered the arba, or horse-drawn cart, that collected the bodies of the dead, dumping them in mass burial sites on the outskirts of settlements. During World War II, Abashuli would go on to fight on the front lines for the Red Army. Nonetheless, he concluded, quote, surviving a famine is not less than surviving a war. As Abashuli's recollections reveal, the period 1930 to 33 was a time of almost unimaginable suffering in the Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan, a vast territory in the heart of Central Asia wedged between China and Russia. And uh, I, I know this is an audience where perhaps I don't need to show a map, but uh, just for the sake of it, I will. Uh, as hunger set in, over a million starving refugees from Kazakhstan flooded neighboring Soviet territories, as well as China, creating a regional crisis of unprecedented proportions. Some never returned to Kazakhstan and today's significant diaspora populations of Kazakhs, many descendants of those who fled during the famine's course remain in the countries that surround Kazakhstan. Prior to the famine, most Kazakhs practiced pastoral nomadism. Uh, by that, I mean that they carry out seasonal migrations along predetermined routes to pasture their animals, including sheep, horses, and camels. And here you can see, uh, this is from the period, this comes from the Kazakh state photo archives, uh, a photograph of a nomad with some of his animals. Sheep were the com most commonly pastured uh, animals. The famine, however, forces Kazakhs to sedentarize or to abandon the economic practice of nomadism. This shift led to very painful and far-reaching changes to Kazakh culture and identity. 
In its staggering human toll, the Kazakh famine was certainly one of the most heinous crimes of the Stalinist regime. Some a million and a half people, a third of all Kazakhs roughly perish, and by the percentage of law, lives lost, the Kazakh famine is the Soviet Union's worst collectivization disaster. Yet the story of this famine has remained largely hidden from view both in Kazakhstan and in the West. Major narratives of the Stalin era mention the Kazakh famine only in passing, and until recently, even the disaster's crucial events and factors were not well known. My book recovers this largely unknown story. I begin with the famine's roots in the last decades of the Russian Empire in the 1890s when the Kazakh steppe was under Russian imperial rule. I then follow the Republic through the tumultuous years of the imposition of Soviet rule and Stalin's attempt to consolidate his hold over the steppe through a violent modernization project that focused on collectivizing the Kazakh nomads. And then I conclude with the Republic's slow road to economic recovery in the post-famine years of the mid-1930s. I argue that the Kazakh famine of 1930 to 33 was the result of Moscow's radical attempt to transform the peoples of the steppe who were known as Kazakhs and a particular territory, Soviet Kazakhstan into a modern Soviet nation. I find that through the most violent means, the Kazakh famine creates Soviet Kazakhstan a stable territory with clearly delineated boundaries that was an integral part of the Soviet economic system. I also find that it created a new Kazakh national identity that largely supplants Kazakhs' previous identification with the system of pastoral nomadism. In the famine's aftermath, Kazakhs begin to think of themselves as a national group, as opposed to a social group or one oriented around the system of pastoral nomadism, which had been the case prior to the famine. The creation of a specifically Soviet Kazakh nationality was in fact a goal of Stalin's efforts to transform the steppe. Through equipping non-Russian groups such as the Kazakhs, Ukrainians, and others with their own territories, languages, bureaucracies, and cultures, Moscow sought to make them into modern Soviet nationalities and integrate them into the collectivist whole. But in many other respects, Moscow fails to achieve its goals. Neither Kazakhstan nor Kazakhs themselves became integrated into the Soviet system in precisely the ways that Moscow had originally hoped. And for those Kazakhs who lived through these hungry years, the experience was deeply traumatic. D. Albekov, who got in his words, quote, a taste of starvation, living through the famine as a young child noted, quote, today I tell people I don't remember the famine. Ultimately, the scars from this famine would haunt the Republic throughout the remainder of the Soviet era and shape its transformation into independent nation in 1991. Indeed, in Kazakhstan today, where the famine remains a largely forbidden topic due in part to Kazakhstan's close relationship with Russia, the publication of my book has inspired intense debate about the meaning of the Soviet past and the nature of modern Kazakh identity. Nearly every major news organization in Kazakhstan covered the book's release. Dozens of Kazakhs wrote to tell me stories of the horrors that their families had endured during the famine. Kazem, uh, Kazem Jomar Tokayev, uh, who is now president of Kazakhstan, commented on my book on Twitter, uh, as you can see here. Uh, the book also ended up featuring, um, much to my enormous surprise, in a demonstration in Times Square. <laughs> you can see here members of the Kazakh diaspora, they're seeking um, to, to call uh, greater attention to the famine. And um, you can see that my book is featured in some of the placards that uh, they're holding up. 
Russian and Kazakh language translations of the book were released last year, and uh, the book ended up becoming the top-selling history title in Kazakhstan in 2020. So how did I approach telling this story and working on such a sensitive topic? Uh, I'd like to talk today about briefly about three goals that influenced how I wrote this book. First, centering the horrors that Kazakhs endured. Second, introducing new methodologies such as environmental history into our study of the Soviet collectivization famines. And third, telling a multifaceted story of the Kazakh disaster, one that integrates the perspectives of Moscow, the Republic's bureaucracy, and Kazakhs themselves. My primary goal in the book was to center the horrors that Kazakhs endured, to reveal the Kazakh famine for what it is, one of the great crimes of the Stalinist regime. Soon after I published the book, I did an interview with a Kazakh journalist. The journalist told me that her grandparents had died during the famine. Like others who were starving, they uh, sought to flee Kazakhstan um, and uh, flee across the border to, to China. And as you can see from the map, uh, Kazakhstan shares a long border with China. But before they could reach China, they were brutally murdered by Soviet border guards. The fate of this journalist family was not that uncommon. My research has revealed that in fact, thousands of starving Kazakhs were killed by Soviet border guards on the Sino-Kazakh border during the height of the famine. This is in stark contrast to the less coercive methods of border control that were practiced in the Soviet Union's West during the same time period, such as deportations. The brutality with which starving Kazakhs were treated is a fact that is little known to most historians of the Soviet period. And most frustrating to this journalist, it is something that is not fully acknowledged or recognized by Kazakhstan's post-Soviet leaders today. In recent years, the journalist has tried to understand where her grandparents' bodies might be. She's pieced together local lore. She's worked with the relatives of others who fled from the same region. Together, they've identified a mass grave site near the Sino-Kazakh border that is the probable final resting place of their relatives. They've estimated that close to a thousand people perished in this massacre alone, and they've erected a simple memorial on that spot. Uh, and here you can see a photo of uh, some of these relatives and the memorial that they've erected. After telling me about her family's own history, the journalist then asked me about an inscription at the beginning of my book. I've included a Kazakh proverb that roughly translates as, quote, until the spirits of the dead are honored, the living will not prosper, end quote. She asked me if the proverb was my, quote, ethical philosophical motivation for writing the book and how I might respond to those Kazakhs who said that a foreigner could not possibly contribute to such a project of, uh, to a project of such national importance. I paused. I never quite thought about these questions in this way, nor been confronted with them by someone who had such a deeply personal connection. I said, writing about such an important subject is not something that I'd undertaken lightly. I immersed myself in Kazakh culture and I spent years writing and researching the book. I told her that I hope my status as an outsider might serve as an advantage in some cases, enabling me to see patterns or themes that those who were raised in Kazakh culture might not necessarily see. And to her first question about whether the proverb was my ethical philosophical motivation for writing the book, after some reflection, I said yes. 
So many of the stories of those who suffered during the famine have been silenced, lost, or forgotten. We know that a horrifying number of people died during the Kazakh famine, but it can be difficult to comprehend what that meant in human terms. I told the journalist that if my book had in some small way honored those who died, then its most important goal had been achieved. How do I seek to do this in the book? First, through close engagement with the literature from another discipline, anthropology, I sought to portray pastoral nomadism, often cast as a backwards way of life, as a highly sophisticated system. The Kazakh steppe has a sharp continental climate. It has hot summers and very cold winters. It's also very arid and prone to drought. And here you can see a climate map of the Kazakh steppe. Uh, you can see basically if you go south, uh, it tends to get more arid, although there are more fertile pockets uh, of soil in the, uh, in the southwest of the Republic. Uh, I show the Kazakhs, uh, southeast, excuse me. Uh, I show that Kazakh's practice of pastoral nomadism was an adaptation to these distinctive environmental features, uh, particularly the scarcity of good pasture land and water. Previous scholarship on the Kazakh famine has tended to downplay the disaster's violent nature and imply that it originated from natural causes. It's been labeled uh, in you know, overviews of the Soviet period that the Kazakh famine has been labeled, quote, a miscalculation by Stalin, a tragedy or a misunderstanding of cultures. Such depictions, I argue, have in fact uh, been part influenced by evolutionary theory, which holds that the disappearance of mobile peoples and their transformation into settled societies is part of the inevitable outgrowth of modernity. My book, by contrast, shows there was nothing inevitable about the famine. In fact, Moscow receives clear warnings about the perils of settling the Kazakh nomads, and Moscow's sweeping attempt to transform the steppe through collectivization and industrialization anticipated the cultural destruction of Kazakh society. And ultimately, I find that the Kazakh disaster may fit an expanded definition of genocide. Another way that I sought to center the stories of Kazakhs was through my source base. Most nomadic societies are oral rather than literary societies. They tend to leave fewer traces in the written record. It's harder to uncover their stories. And the sources that we do have about nomadic peoples are often filled with assumptions. To counter such tendencies, I tried as much as I could to tell the story through the voices of Kazakhs themselves. I utilized sources in Russian, but I also utilized sources in Kazakh. I used archival sources in the book, but I also draw upon materials that were not uh, produced by the Communist Party or state, such as memoirs and published oral history accounts. Through this approach, through centering the horrors that Kazakhs endured, we also get a more complete view of what this destruction actually meant for Kazakhs themselves. Pastoral nomadism, I try to show in the book, was not just an economic strategy, not just a way of making use of the steppe scarce resources. It was also a crucial source of identity. And here you can see a shot of Kazakhs uh, from the period. This shot is from uh, the 1920s. It actually comes from the American Museum of Natural History in New York through an American expedition to the steppe in this period. Historically, the practice of pastoral nomadism, uh, continuing along the theme of pastoral nomadism as important to identity, it had determined who was Kazakh, who was considered to be Kazakh, and who was not in the steppe region. But the assault on this way of life, I show, transformed a distinct culture. It would have important effects on the way modern Kazakh identity would be constructed by Soviet planners, and later after the Soviet collapse, reimagined by post-Soviet nationalists. 
Today, in many respects, we might conceive of Kazakhstan as a post-traumatic society. Ibrahim, who is a Mudina, for instance, who lived through the famine as a young boy, saw starving Kazakhs dying in the streets on his way to school. More than 50 years later, he noted, to this day, I can hear the desperate calls of the dying, desperate cries of the dying and their calls for help. Kazakhs are still coming to terms with the horrors that they endured. A second goal in my writing of the book was to integrate different methodologies into our study of the Soviet collectivization famines. To date, the, subject, the study of this subject has been dominated by a state-centered approach. The major trigger for the famine in Kazakhstan was collectivization. This was part of Stalin's plan to help the Soviet Union industrialize, uh, boost agricultural production, and catch up to the capitalist West. And of course, at the same time, uh, roughly the same time that famine hits Kazakhstan, it also hits other parts of the Soviet Union, most notably Ukraine and parts of Russia. Across the Soviet Union, somewhere between five and nine million people perish. In the literature, a long-running and polemical debate has focused on the question of whether the famine that happened in Ukraine was used by Stalin to punish Ukrainians as an ethnic group. The story of the Soviet collectivization famines has come to focus largely on Ukrainians to the exclusion of the Kazakh disaster. The issue of the famine has become and still remains a big wedge issue between Ukraine and Russia. Indeed, the highly politicized nature of the Soviet collectivization famines has played a major role in how these famines have been studied. Most scholars have adopted a state-centered approach. They focus tightly on Moscow's actions during the launch of forced collectivization with an eye to trying to understand how these actions might have contributed to or mitigated hunger. But such an approach, one that focuses closely on the years of the famine itself, is at odds with the broader literature on famines, which has shown how both abrupt change and slower moving structural processes can combine to produce a famine. Focusing solely on the state also neglects the very real environmental challenges that the regime faced in transforming an arid landscape like the Kazakh steppe into an agrarian region. The environment of the Kazakh steppe, like other arid regions, was highly unstable. Rainfall patterns could vary dramatically from year to year, producing an excellent harvest one year, but a disastrous one the next. The distribution of soils could shift, with good quality soils becoming heavily salinated over time. And here is just a reminder of, uh, you know, of, of uh, the different ecological zones in Kazakhstan. To correct some of these tendencies in the literature, I use a wider lens than just the years of the famine itself. I situate the Kazakh crisis in the longer history of the Russian Empire's efforts to transform the steppe into an agrarian region. I show that changes begun under Russian imperial rule, particularly the settlement of the Kazakh steppe by more than a million peasant settlers from European Russia, provoked important shifts to Kazakh's diet and migration routes. These changes made Kazakhs more susceptible to famine. It's doubtful that famine would have broken out anywhere in the Soviet Union during the 1930s without the Soviet regime's violent assaults on the countryside. But the legacies of Russian imperial rule must be considered a contributing factor. I also introduce methods from environmental history. I show that environmental change, namely a drought in the summer of 1931, became a factor in the famine, deepening Kazakh's descent into hunger once Moscow's assault on Kazakh life had already begun. 
And uh, as you might imagine, for obvious reasons, there are not too many photographs of starving people uh, during the famine because this was not something that Moscow wanted known. Uh, nonetheless, we have a few. Um, here you can see some Kazakh uh, refugees. And here you can see a few others. These are probably first wave refugees because they actually have clothes, they have some belongings. And as the famine wears on, the sources are quite unanimous in the indigence of Kazakhs. They didn't even have warm clothing. Uh, but the weather I reveal was not a kind of independent factor, something that the regime could not control. Rather, I show that Moscow had clear information about the risks of nomadic settlement and the possibility of a drought. Turning to my third goal in writing this book, uh, the integration of different levels of analysis. One of the challenges I think in telling a story like this is in that trying to center the Kazakh story and trying to humanize it, perhaps you might fall sway to a narrative of victimization. This narrative is particularly prevalent in the literature on the Ukrainian famine, where some have framed Ukrainians as the unwitting victims of Stalin's assault on the countryside. And returning to the Times Square photo, you can see that some of this has surfaced in the Kazakh case as well. Um, you'll notice here, uh, looking at this photo, that, that they connect the civil war famine, which I would argue from which originated from very different causes with the latter famine of, of the 1930s, collect, connecting this to kind of a longer, putting this in a longer term trajectory of uh, Kazakh suffering uh, against uh, Russian and Soviet oppression. And um, this is explicitly borrowing, they have borrowed this uh, from the way many Ukrainians have framed the Ukrainian famine. These narratives of victimization have surfaced for many reasons, and they have at times been lent further credence by the analytic lenses that scholars have used to study Stalinist crimes. They study these crimes from the top down or from the bottom up. And for all that's been written about the Soviet regime's use of violence against particular ethnic groups, we actually have very few studies that um, examine how these campaigns were implemented locally. And in the absence of stu such studies, the default assumption has usually been that um, these atrocities were committed by Russians or outsiders sent from Moscow. So a third goal that I had in the writing of the book was to tell a multifaceted story, to integrate the perspectives of Moscow, the Republic's party state bureaucracy, and ordinary Kazakhs. Ultimately, the book follows several stories over the course of the crisis, tracing the intersections and tensions between them. First, the evolution of Moscow's policies towards the peoples of the steppe, the nomadic peoples. Second, the creation of a local level Soviet bureaucracy in Kazakhstan, and the reasons why many Kazakhs came to participate in an assault on their own society. Third, and finally, it explores the ways that ordinary Kazakhs experienced the terrifying years of the famine, and what such experiences meant for the nature of Kazakh identity. I show that in the Kazakh case, as in famines more generally, the notion of victimhood is very complicated. Survival during the horrors of the famine demanded ingenuity, good fortune, and on occasion, ruthless and cruel behavior. Hunger, I find, could override the strongest taboos and, in and inhibitions, even compelling some to commit cannibalism. During the famine, incidents of crime rose and communal bonds start to break down. As the Kazakh memoirist Muhammad Shaikh Miatov recalled, quote, everyone was now preoccupied with getting something to eat for the following day or the same day or that very moment to relieve their hunger pains. Even the kindest hearted people and closest friends and relatives could no longer help one out. 
I also show that Moscow's transformation of the steppe achieved its peculiarly devastating power, not because it was carried out by Russians or outsiders sent from Moscow. Rather, it was because Moscow partially succeeded in destroying Kazakh society from within. In a strategy, a strategy purposely designed to shatter old allegiances and sow violent conflict in Kazakh communities, Moscow empowers Kazakhs themselves to make some of the most crucial choices in the collectivization campaign, such as who should be considered an exploiter and how much grain to As my book reveals, the efforts of these local cadres were crucial. They shape the scale of the violence, its intensity, but also its character, including which groups won out and which groups lost. Ultimately, I believe such a lens also sheds new light on the nature of the Soviet state, Soviet nation-making, or the project of molding certain groups into cohesive nationalities was not just imposed from above. Rather, it was participatory, and the book stresses the ways that Kazakhs themselves shaped Soviet Kazakhstan's eventual integration into state structures. So having told you a bit about some of the goals that shaped my book and also the responses to it in Kazakhstan, uh, I wanna now turn um, to the last, uh, last few minutes of my talk. And that is, you know, what did I learn from all of this? And uh, how has that shaped my thinking about what I'm gonna write about next? Through working on my first book, I did come to appreciate how much Soviet history as a field is still defined by its Western half. You can see this in all kinds of ways. And uh, I'll give you one concrete example. Soviet history is often thought of as European history. If you walk into a bookstore, for instance, you'll find books about Soviet and Russian history in the European history section. But the Soviet Union was not just a European power. It was an Asian one too. And if we overstress the Soviet Union's European nature or neglect its Eastern half, we ultimately end up with a distorted view of what it was about. I knew that there were many other stories relating to Central Asia, just like the Kazakh famine that were not yet fully explored. These studies have implications not only for our knowledge of Central Asia, but also for our understanding of Soviet history as a whole. The reaction to my first book also made me think a bit more about some of the barriers that persist between research done in the West about Central Asia and research done by scholars in the region. Arguably, there's still not that much dialogue between the two worlds. Scholars from Central Asia are underrepresented in the field as it's practiced in the West, and many key works are not translated either from vernacular languages into English or from English into the vernacular. My book, I believe, was one of the first scholarly works about Central Asia written in the West to be translated into a vernacular language of the region. And I was really gratified by the response to the book in Central Asia, and I found this to be the single most rewarding outcome uh, of writing it. And so when I looked around for a second project, I knew I, that I again wanted to find a topic that would resonate deeply with people in the region and attract a significant local audience in addition to a readership in the West. This has led me to my current research on the RLC and to a book-length project tentatively entitled uh, The RLC, Environment, Society, and State Power in Central Asia. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has prevented me from beginning field research on the project, uh, but I'll just speak to you briefly now about some of the major questions that inform it. Uh, the RLC, 
or what remains of it, is located uh, between Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan in Central Asia. It's perhaps best known as the site of one of the 20th century's worst environmental catastrophes. The Aral Sea was once the world's fourth largest inland body of water, uh, but as it begins to shrink dramatically in the 1960s, uh, but it begins to shrink dramatically in the 1960s, and that's when uh, Moscow begins to divert a lot of the rivers that feed it for cotton production. The desiccation of the sea continues throughout the late Soviet era, and by the late 1980s, uh, the sea splits into two bodies of water, the North Aral Sea and the South Aral Sea. And here's a, a shot of uh, some of the changes. By some estimates, by the late Soviet period, the sea had lost a volume of water equivalent to draining both Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. And as a result of the sea's declining water levels, the climate and ecology of the surrounding region changed and the people who lived near the sea, the Kazakhs on the Kazakh side and the Karakalpaks on the Uzbek side, uh, began to experience a dramatic increase in health problems. The sea's uh, vibrant uh, fishing industry comes to a halt. In the West, images of Aral Sea fishing ships stuck in the sand became powerful symbols of Soviet decline and crimes against nature. And some of you, you know, even if you, you might have heard the term Aral Sea, I find um, some people haven't heard the name, but they're familiar with these very, very striking photos of uh, ships uh, stuck in the sand. In Moscow, the decline in the Aral Sea's water levels was something that was discussed over many decades. Experts weighed the need to boost cotton production against the ecological effects that further irrigation could provoke. Under General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev, Soviet water experts revived an idea first advanced by Russian imperial planners. They proposed to divert Siberian water south to Central Asia over a distance of 1,500 miles to save the sea. Initial work began on the project, but it met with controversy, and eventually under Gorbachev, the river diversion scheme was abandoned. With the Soviet collapse in 1991, the newly independent states of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan inherited this pressing environmental problem. And eventually, uh, the World Bank and the United States, um, United States Agency for International Development, they intervened, but with very mixed uh, results. Today, water levels have been partially restored in the North Aral Sea on the Kazakh side, uh, in part due to a World Bank effort to construct a dam. You can see it in the image there. But the South Aral Sea on the Uzbek side has continued its decline and people in the region suffer disproportionately from health problems such as respiratory diseases and cancer. But despite the Aral Sea's clear importance for our understanding of water use and the nature of the late Soviet era, there is at present no detailed scholarly account by a historian of the causes and consequences of its disaster. This gap is due in part to the fact that the bulk of the crisis takes place in the late Soviet era. Uh, a time period that the field has yet to fully explore. It's also due to some of those same factors that have caused the Kazakh famine to be overlooked, namely a lingering Eurocentrism within the Soviet field and a tendency to marginalize the stories of nomadic peoples. The people who lived around the sea, both on the Kazakh side and on the Uzbek side were mobile. My study will explore the causes and consequences of the Aral Sea disaster for the peoples of the region. I plan on using archival materials and published sources such as Soviet scientific journals, as well as conducting oral history interviews. To capture both the top-down and bottom-up perspective, I'll integrate Russian and Turkic language sources. And I also plan on conducting research on both sides of the sea, both the Kazakh and the Uzbek sides. When scholars have looked at the sea, they've tended to focus on one side or another. 
But exactly how the sea got broken down along national lines, how one side became Uzbek and the other Kazakh, and why we see such different outcomes on the Uzbek side versus the Kazakh side, that's a crucial part of what I'm interested in exploring. Chronologically, my study does not just focus on the late Soviet period when the sea began to disappear rapidly. Rather, it traces the sea's transformation over the course of the 20th century, covering first the Russian Empire's engagement with the sea, then the interventions of Soviet planners, and finally the efforts of independent Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, and outside agencies like the World Bank and USAID to manage the crisis. In the West, the discourse about the Aral Sea has often been influenced by Cold War politics or um, the attempt uh, to paint the United to paint the Soviet Union as uniquely environmentally destructive. But what's been forgotten often in all of this uh, is that the Aral Sea, particularly its southern delta region, was a highly mutable environment. And here you can see a, a Russian imperial uh, map uh, from the time period. The Aral Sea's channels could shift frequently due to environmental change, such as the buildup of sediment in its waterways. Uh, in the 19th century, Russian imperial officials, for instance, complained that they could not even map the sea's channels because such maps became outdated within a decade. And if we look back into the longer history of human engagement with the sea, work by archaeologists has shown that repeated cycles of resource exploitation and exhaustion were actually common features of humans' interaction with the region. The Aral Sea had a fragile environment that was easily altered by anthropogenic processes. And so the longer chronological scope that I'll take with the study will allow me to understand first how the Soviet regime's interventions interacted with ongoing environmental change, and second, what was distinctive about uh, this crisis of the Soviet era as compared to other cycles of resource exploitation and exhaustion that had occurred in the region. Why is this study important? First, I believe it has important implications for understanding of Soviet history. Uh, it could help us clarify if the Soviet Union was uniquely environmentally destructive, a point that's hotly debated in the literature. The Soviet collapse is poorly understood, and the project will shed light on the role of ecological factors and nationalism in its demise. In the late Soviet era, activists on both the Kazakh and Uzbek sides of the sea mobilized to protest uh, Moscow's water policies. Second, the Aral Sea crisis is in many respects still ongoing. Scientists continue to debate the strategies that they should take from afforestation or the planting of trees to the building of dams to address the dying, drying up of the seabed. Uh, and here you can see the planting of uh, Saksaul uh, trees on the Uzbek side. In this respect, the Aral Sea is part of a larger global debate about how to manage arid regions one that is still very much being debated uh, today by the United Nations, World Bank, and others. It's precisely because this topic has such immediate contemporary relevance that it interests me. My study, I hope, could offer solutions and best practices to address the Aral Sea crisis in the future. So I think I'll stop here, uh, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you.